Hello, this is Change Agents, a series about change and the people who make it happen. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today, abolishing the gay panic defence. Part of the reason it's difficult to come to grips with the phenomenon is that the person who could tell you what actually happened, give the other side of the story, is dead. I said that to uh, the Attorney General when I had a meeting with him. I said, you know, this isn't a gay rights issue. And he said to me, yeah, but they're using it. I said, well, wouldn't you if you were being bashed and killed? Gay panic is a phenomenon which has literally led to people getting away with murder. It's a form of legal defence which has been used by people to convince juries that they were provoked into killing someone because they were the subject of a sexual advance from a gay man. As a result, many defendants have been convicted of the lesser offence of manslaughter. The capacity to claim the homosexual advance defence, as it's also known, has progressively been eradicated around Australia, with Queensland the latest state to do so. Today we'll meet two of the people who've worked hard to change these laws, Father Paul Kelly, a Queensland Catholic priest, and Sydney barrister David Buchanan, SC, who helped bring about reform in New South Wales at a time when it was desperately needed. Ah, well, there were many, many cases where... People were killing homosexuals and they were escaping justice or escaping punishment on the claim that their uh, killing was a response to being touched by or or fearful of being touched by a homosexual man in a sexual way. And it was serious if, if you take the rule of law seriously in as much as the court's system was, on one view of it, being perverted by people escaping justice for what otherwise were extremely serious crimes. Are we talking about dozens of cases or a few isolated yes, ones? certainly, certainly, certainly. I was just rereading some of the statistics and the statistics that were being pulled out of the system in the 90s were of uh, you know some 84 cases in in a couple of decades it really doesn't make for pleasant reading and in queensland paul what was the situation like well it was so bad where i was in maryborough that a man was killed in july 2008 and uh, one of the attackers used the, the fact that uh, he alleged a homosexual advance was used. And then in August of the same year, just a short uh, number of kilometres south of Maribor, another man was murdered. And again in the trial, one of the attackers said that uh, a homosexual advance had caused the provocation. So July, within two months, uh, two deaths allegedly, with no proof that it actually had anything to do with homosexual advance, uh, but was claimed. So I, I thought it was getting out of hand. My reaction was, I think this is becoming a thing. And uh, the fact that uh, you could say somebody made a homosexual advance and it didn't have to be true or you suspected it to be true, and even if it was true, why does that 
justify extreme violence. I, I felt it, it it was something one could possibly use, whether whether it happened or not. Well, as we know, there are many names for this phenomenon. Uh, gay panic is the name that it's commonly given in the States. Is gay panic a real thing? Is there such a thing as a response that creates this kind of um, passionate and um, irrational lashing out against people in the face of a homosexual advance when you yourself are confused about your homosexuality or are straight? I think you could call it uh, by different names like uh, homophobia, um, bigotry, irrational fear of things you don't understand. Uh, uh, enshrining it as, as some kind of a condition placates and uh, minimises the, the reaction. There's no doubt that there are really important psychological aspects to the phenomenon which, which were important to understand, particularly for police to understand if they're going to be able effectively to investigate these sorts of cases. And part of it is simply a response to the fact of being confronted with a different person in terms of sexuality, you know, going out to a place where homosexuals congregate and attacking someone there, or it is um, something that can be used by someone to justify uh, a killing without any sexuality component, or it could indeed be something that speaks to the fact that the assailant is a person who is conflicted, seriously conflicted about his own sexuality and takes that confusion and internal psychological conflict out on the victim, on his victim. And it's, and it's often typified in the cases by extraordinary frenzies of stabbings, you know, stabbing the victim 57 times, you know, cutting off their head, um, burning down their house, just, just extraordinary responses to what is claimed to have been some sort of homosexual advance or concern that there would be one. Were there really perverse outcomes in the courts where people were simply getting away with murder or were most of these cases resulting in convictions for manslaughter with the partial provocation defence being used. What was it like in New South Wales? One of the things to bear in mind is it's always difficult to know. Part of the reason it's difficult to come to grips with the phenomenon is that the person who could tell you what actually happened, give the other side of the story, is dead. And so what you're going off is a, an assessment of a pattern of accounts that people give that stretch credulity, to put it mildly. And when you look at the literature and you see that this has been perceived in places other than New South Wales, indeed other than Australia, you see that this has been a matter of concern in all sorts of different places in the United States and also in Europe, that then confirms to one that, well, you know, maybe we've got a problem here too and we should uh, have a better understanding of it. Uh, it depended, you see, on what the legal defence was that they used. If they used the legal defence of self-defence, then of course they could get off scot-free. 
if they use it depended upon what the law was in the particular jurisdiction as to what the response of the courts should be to such a claim if it was accepted as true by a jury and in some cases it could result in the complete acquittal in other cases it could result in a diminution of responsibility so that there was then a, a diminution in the punishment that they were would receive Paul, in your case, it was that killing in 2008 in July in the churchyard, in, in the, the grounds of your church in Maryborough, that really prompted you to action on this. Why was that such a defining moment for you? Well, uh, the body being found uh, at the side entrance to the church and uh, the distress uh, caused amongst the parish and, and me next door, unable to do anything except help with the security footage, which I had helped install. Um, so when I looked at the footage of what had happened and then followed the case, someone suggesting that a man grabbed one of the attacker's crotch when no such thing happened uh, made me very mad. And I thought, why are they, why are they raising this? See, there's, a, there's what I call a muddying of the waters effect here. Uh, in these cases, people have been at pains to say, now, we didn't actually technically plead this defence. We just raised the fact that this man attacked us as one of the reasons we we did it. But I say, well, look, that's poisoning the waters. You can't unpoison them once once that's been said. It it doesn't tap into the, the enormous psychological uh, effects it can have on a jury. Uh, and the mother of the victim was up on the steps of the court saying, my son wasn't gay, he didn't, he didn't, um, he wasn't into this and he had a girlfriend. And I thought she has rightly picked up what I think others do unconsciously. They realise that somehow this is negative to the victim and it uh, discounts the seriousness of what had happened to them. So to me, uh, the, the perversity of this is you can, as as David said, you can bash someone 30 times, leave them for dead, unaided. And somehow manslaughter seems a, a pathetic inadequacy to that result. It took you some years, in fact until 2011, to kick off a petition on change.org which really garnered incredible support, you know, around 300,000 signatures to to fight this cause. What was going on in the interim? Were you watching this go through the courts and becoming increasingly frustrated by what was going on? Yes, I, uh, I got frustrated very early, but I thought, well, look, this is a case in progress and I didn't want to uh, be in contempt of court. Uh, so I had to, to watch carefully the, the case, follow the result, then follow the, the appeals processes. In the meantime, I was writing to the Attorney General and asking questions like, "Why is this? Why is this law still there? How is this allowed in?" And then, when I didn't get adequate answers, I really pounced on it after the appeals had all been concluded. The, the interesting thing is that there is, in fact, nowhere anywhere in law that enshrines the homosexual advanced defence. It doesn't say anywhere in the statutes that there is such a thing. It's it's a common law interpretation of a provocation defence. So how do you change something that doesn't actually exist? It, it's a phenomenon. What it, the phenomenon does is it uses the law as a vehicle, but the phenomenon is homophobia uh, or the phenomenon of male honour and the need to protect it. 
And it is that phenomenon which is used by the assailant and which is the message which is understood by the jury and by the public at large, which is the, the real problem, although it is obviously good to be able to change the, the legal vehicle so as to restrict the occasions on which this phenomenon can pervert the law. So your campaign is all about really stopping defence lawyers being able to suggest to juries this instance of homosexual attacks so as to prevent juries, uh, I suppose, resorting to homophobia. Yes, although in New South Wales, we took a much, much broader approach. We took an approach of community education, and I don't mean so much the lesbian and gay and transgender communities as the broader legal communities, um, judges, uh, lawyers, um, activist groups, specialist groups, the Judicial Commission, the Australian Institute of Criminology, all of these bodies which had a role to play in collecting data, understanding that there was a problem, understanding the psychological and the legal underpinnings of the problem, and then adjusting what they do in their own way to contribute to reducing the incidence of the problem. All right, well, let's, let's talk about how the, the change to law came about. Let's have a look at the case in Queensland. You've got a petition that's gathering numbers. It's uh, retweeted by Stephen Fry and it takes off in the public consciousness. What happens next to that groundswell of support? How does it materialise into legislative change? It took a while because um, there was a resistance from the governments, uh, successive governments uh, from both sides of uh, politics. Uh, they were they seemed a bit resistant to b admitting and paying attention to this growing petition because it it wasn't one of the petitions that were under their format. Like the governments have kind of tamed uh, public. Uh, opinion by saying, look, you have to fill out a form and it has to be in this certain, you know, standard and, uh, you know, you have to, you know, have addresses and all this sort of stuff, which is all very important. But in a way, the government's controlled how it, they addressed petitions, whereas these these electronic petitions are basically saying, well, whatever about that, there's 300,000 people watching and we're not happy. And that is very effective. So we had these strange things where one of the attorney generals came out and said, look, we're looking at this issue, but we were looking at it anyway, and it had nothing to do with that petition. And I thought, well, I think you're protesting too much there. So there was this, this change, but a begrudging one, until eventually the pressure from that many people being concerned eventually had them just dropping that whole pretense and saying yes this is an issue and there's a lot of people concerned and we're going to change it so what was the catalyst for that what, what was the point at which they had to tip over and say enough we have to do something about this i think it kept coming up in the media and the numbers kept going up and people are saying this is ridiculous why doesn't the government government do something about it i think it just became embarrassing and that wasn't the case with both governments was it because you were dealing with both the government of campbell newman and anna bligh Anna Bly's government, we did uh, we did have resistance from the Attorney General there. They sort of changed just before they got thrown out of government. Uh, the LNP wasn't 
really interested in considering it at all. Then the Labor Party came back in and was keen on looking at it, and then the LNP said it was too. In the end, you achieved bipartisan support. Yes, which is wonderful. Was it crucial? Did that have to happen? No, but that's excellent. That is really ideal. Okay, over in New South Wales, this is all happening a little bit before it's happening in Queensland. What was the mechanism by which this change came about, David? In terms of uh, um, something that was tangible, it was the establishment by the then Attorney General Jeff Shaw in a Labor government of a departmental working party to examine the issue. The departmental working party had on it a broad cross-section of uh, people with uh, skills, criminal statistics, academia, prosecutor, defenders, gay activists, police, very importantly, the police. Although I noticed Uh, that there were about 10 people on that panel and only one of them was a woman. That could easily have been the case. Um, And indeed, at one stage, that might have been the head of it. Um, because it was chaired by the head of the Criminal Law Review Division of the Attorney General's Department. What triggered Jeff Shaw to set this inquiry or this panel up? I think it was not pressure. He was sensitive. I, I myself knew Jeff Shaw. I'm a barrister. He was a barrister. He was sensitive to the issues. He understood them as soon as they were explained. He could see that it was something that needed to have something done about. You wouldn't necessarily have got the same response from another Attorney General. Well, what's apparent in that panel's report is that it's actually incredibly complicated. It's not just a a simple question of doing away with the homosexual advance defence, because then you're you're tinkering with the entire system of provocation, and that then has all sorts of unintended consequences – one of which is for people who have been charged with murder over battered woman syndrome. So it's actually incredibly complex law, this. Indeed, and and controversial. Uh, You know, uh, the partial defence of manslaughter, as it's called, has been controversial for centuries, certainly a large part of the 20th century going into the 21st century in both the UK and in Australia. And... To suggest that the defence itself be abolished would be buying into a huge row, which is why at the end of the day, so far as recommendations for legal change was concerned, what we sought to do was simply carve out from the defence cases of non-violent homosexual advance or claims of it when made by a defendant charged with murder. Because even in that instance, it's not as simple as saying that in the case of a homosexual advance, you shouldn't have some recourse to provocation because some homosexual advances, like other sexual advances, can be violent. And you need to ensure that there is a self-defence mechanism in place for cases of violent attack. Yeah, we we can't skew the legal system. That's not going to be a very good idea. What we need to do is is ensure justice. That's what we're after. But to ensure justice requires very careful fine tuning. The uh, I think I think there's a bit of a confusion here, and uh, this has kind of stymied me right through the five years of this campaign. Victoria dealt with this quite effectively. It moved the battered uh, 
victims uh, right out into its own section. Self-defence is a separate defence. It's a complete defence, as it should be. So using provocation for domestic violence victims is, is a very poor way of dealing with it. They still go to jail. They still get manslaughter. Whereas if they could argue it was self-defence after years of of uh, a pattern emerging, they would, I think, rightly get off completely. Uh, I do think provocation doesn't have a place in modern society. And what we're finding is that people are one by one finding things wrong with it and picking it off. I, I personally think it should be removed entirely. Self-defence is a separate defence and quite a quite an effective one. For more serious crimes, there's always been a proportionate uh, response if people are in fear of their life or, or, or of serious injury. So I, I, I think it's been raised by governments that that's why they couldn't do anything in relation to provocation. I think that's not correct. Are you saying that provocation should, if it's used at all, be used just in sentencing? Uh, yes, I think so. I, I, see, it doesn't fit in modern society. The idea, we've got a one-punch-can-kill uh, campaign going on and it's affected itself through the law. Uh, you know, we're really saying, listen, even a small amount of violence to, to a provocation can have enormous impacts and we want to show that in, in uh, sentencing. So I don't think there's any room for saying, yeah, we, we're going to make allowance for someone who lost control and got so angry, so overcome that they killed somebody or seriously injured them. So I really don't think in a modern society provocation has much or any of a place. It's It, it just goes against everything else that we're doing. The Victorian Parliament dealt with this by introducing the law of defensive homicide in 2005. Mm. Queensland doesn't really resolve this issue until 2017. So why didn't you just pick up the Victorian example and run with that? I, I did. I did. Uh, that, and they kept raising that issue and bringing up these uh, straw straw things to be knocked down. Um, I, I don't think people were prepared to hear it. What were the obstacles? Why, why weren't they prepared? I don't think they wanted to change it because they, they didn't want to be seen to be... Uh, getting involved in this some kind of a gay agenda it, it, I kept saying this isn't a gay agenda this is just this is just about treating everyone equally in New Zealand where provocation was used by a, a violent man to say that when his partner was leaving uh, him he bashed her to death because he was he felt provoked that caused such a rightful outcry that the law was changed overnight so I just point out that uh, uh, for some groups of people, they rightly change things overnight. Other people, they wait five years and find all sorts of arguments why they can't do it until they have to. Paul, is it really the case that people weren't prepared to take up this issue because it was perceived to be a gay issue and that that people didn't want to, what, pander to people over gay rights? What, what was the problem? Well, that was virtually said. I... I said that to uh, the Attorney General when I had a meeting with him. I said, you know, this isn't a gay rights issue. And he said to me, yeah, but they're using it. I said, well, wouldn't you if you were being bashed and killed? So I, I thought, well, that's a funny response. So I, I do think it was... And see, the LNP at the time, well, there were a lot of things happening at the same time. There was cutting of, 
of uh, support to uh, HIV support. And there was a whole lot of things that seemed to have a, we don't want to be affiliated with with the gay community coming through. Was that an issue in New South Wales, David? What we did was we were trying to change the views of people who worked in the legal system and in investigating these cases with a view to reducing the incidence of the phenomenon. And, and, I, and I think we succeeded in that. I think people were concerned about apparent, indeed pretty blatant injustice. And once they understood what admittedly were somewhat more complex issues than you usually read in the front pages of tabloid newspapers, then people were able to say, okay, well, you know, maybe in that case we need to adjust what we do in order to reduce our contribution to things going wrong in the operation of the legal system. Would you Um, say, though, that there was institutionalised homophobia in the court system in New South Wales? Unquestionably, in as much as it's part of the legal system. I mean, the whole of the the statute law on on the statute books was uh, skewed against homosexuals. I mean, in in the 90s, in, in both the Commonwealth sphere and the New South Wales state sphere, you know, there was a discriminatory age of consent, you know, discriminatory inheritance laws, discriminatory tax laws, discriminatory marriage laws, you name it homosexuals were on the outer. And so that, you know, fed through to the uh, approach that people took to gay issues in relation to the law generally. As the reforms were made to eliminate the discriminatory features of the law, so too people came to understand that there were other features of the legal system, including the way the courts dealt with claims of homosexual advance raised as a defence to a charge of murder that needed looking at. And yes, of course, there was, there was homophobia, un- unquestionably, and that was, that was the problem. That was, it, the stereotype was what infused the general community of the predatory homosexual. And that stereotype, you could just see operating in the minds or the heads of, of members of juries. It would be a brave juror before these changes started seeping through, who would have said, hang on a sec, you know, um, we need to look at this claim that the the defendant was reasonably responding to um, a, a, a homosexual advance a little bit more closely. In Queensland, Paul, the mechanism by which you've now addressed this is an insertion or an amendment to the the relevant act, which now makes now makes explicit that the Defensive provocation can't be used in non-violent sexual uh, advances, homosexual or otherwise. Is that the beginning of the campaign or is that the end? Have you done your work? As, um, as David said earlier, I actually think the, um, the awareness campaign was more important than the quality of the amendments. I really don't... I don't think that's adequate because... But, but it was effective enough to to, uh, to enshrine a change in thinking and override some of the common law presumptions. But it wouldn't stop some sneaky person saying, look, I'm not pleading that, but I just want to let you know that I bashed him because he came on to me. So, you know, if you can get that in, you've poisoned it. 
and it taps into deep-seated uh, presumptions and prejudices. But look, it, it was it was adequate. And David, are you along the way now to, to, to really addressing and solving this problem or is, some, or is there more work to do? You know, you can never say that there's no more work to do, but there's no doubt that the incidence of homosexual advanced events as a phenomenon has dramatically reduced in New South Wales. There's no question about it. Um, can I just say, one of the important features of the work that we did in the 90s was to educate the police. And this worked. And there was a very famous case in the early 1990s where an openly gay man was killed um, in, in a public place by uh, uh, another man with a, a bow and arrow. The police did a top-notch job involving quite complex investigation techniques, but particularly with an understanding of the psychological issues involved when someone is killing someone else because of their sexuality or because of the perception of what their sexuality is. And once the police came round and started in collecting the evidence and putting evidence before courts, which showed that really these claims of a homosexual advanced defence should not be believed, could not be believed, they were just fabricated, then you know, it, it made it obviously a lot easier for juries to reject them and the education of judges at the same time, even though the law hadn't changed uh, at that stage in the 90s and the early 2000s, the judges were educated. There, there were passages put into what are called their bench books by the Judicial Commission to, ex to explain to juries concepts of, fundamental concepts of a, a, a different sexuality, of homosexuality and of how jurors must not allow homophobia to influence their deliberations. Considerations like that, uh, uh, education of prosecutors, education of defenders, it was that sort of broad education which I think brought about a far greater reduction and far swifter reduction in the use of, of this phenomenon than the ultimate, and it did take a long time, the ultimate amendment of the statute law. And Paul, as well as that very important component of education, what else have you learnt about what's important in bringing about change through doing what you've done in Queensland? I think uh, there is a very important need for um, explicit awareness of issues. Like when somebody gets seriously assaulted or, or in a case where someone's killed, you know, they don't always ask and they didn't always ask, now, okay, was this a hate crime or was this a, a, an action against a suspected homosexual? Where people are more aware of these hate crimes and, uh, and these factors, it actually becomes part of the reporting and therefore the statistics start, start showing how serious it is. Like at one point people were saying, oh, you know, we don't have many cases of this. That's because it's not being reported and collected with that in mind. So an awareness actually starts to collect the, uh, the, the statistics that then show how serious these things are because it's usually under the surface. So it's kind of, and it, as you said earlier, the law, it doesn't say homosexual anywhere in that section until 
you know, it might be brought into some uh, legislation. So, but it is just under the surface because of, you know, social understandings, uh, unchallenged presumptions. So the, the awareness is just bringing to the surface what's just underneath it. Well, to both of you, to David Buchanan and uh, Paul Kelly, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Father Paul Kelly, a Queensland Catholic priest, and Sydney barrister David Buchanan, SC. Change Agents is a collaboration between The Conversation and the Swinburne Leadership Institute and Swinburne University's Department of Media and Communication. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud. Producer Sam Wilson, production Heather Jarvis. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time for Change Agents.